Welcome to the Speaking of Kids podcast. Speaking of Kids is brought to you by Kids Centered, a multidisciplinary center for children with special needs in the Massachusetts Metro West area and beyond. I'm Dr. Eve Duran Miles Mason, and I'm joined today by Sharon Musto. Sharon is a highly trained reading and literacy specialist. She has over 30 years of experience in special education. She has worked at the Landmark School, which is a specialized school for children with dyslexia and language-based learning disorders. Uh, she worked there since 1992. It's located in Beverly and Manchester. Sharon wore many hats when she was at Landmark. She was a special educator in the classroom. She was a testing coordinator for 15 years. She trained and evaluated teachers in learning phonemic and fluency programs. And she was a public school liaison for five years. So we're delighted to have her at the center. Uh, she has a wealth of knowledge in dyslexia and remediation. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So Sharon, today I thought we might start with just talking about um, the diagnosis of dyslexia and what dyslexia actually is. There is um, a lot of people are very curious about it. People want to know what it is. There's a lot of kind of confusion about it. And I think some myths about dyslexia and what it is. You're 100% correct. I think one of those biggest myths is, oh, they're dyslexic. So they see everything backwards. Um, and it's not, it's not that they're seeing everything backwards. So if someone is dyslexic, they have a brain-based disability where neurologically their brain processes language differently than the neurotypical brain. Um, if you are dyslexic, you have difficulty with the phonemic awareness and like understanding that words are made up of sounds and those sounds are represented by letters. There's difficulty. I think the reason that Sometimes people joke, oh, they see it backwards is because people with dyslexia frequently will have difficulty visually discriminating letters. It's not that they're seeing them backwards. It's that they're not, they haven't correctly correlated the sound with the letter. So Sharon, uh, just to clarify, so it's not an issue with hearing. It's not that you're not hearing something correctly. You don't have impairment in hearing. It's, it's more of the processing of what you're hearing. So there's a, there's a disconnect somewhere between what you've heard and what you know that it represents. Okay. So, so it's the processing of language. Absolutely. The, sorry, sorry, the oral processing of language. So uh, somebody with dyslexia, um, so if you, when you're learning to read, you, somewhere along the line, you have to understand that the, the sound T associates with the visual letter T, what the actual... Correct. Visual letter T, so T stands for T, um, and P sounds for P, stands for P, um, and this is where there's a breakdown for students with dyslexia. Exactly. So it really starts at that foundational level level of phoneme awareness or phonemic awareness. So do they understand that each, like I said, each word is made up of sounds, and each sound is represented by a symbol. So that phonemic awareness starts at the beginning by just understanding that there are different sounds. So if I said the word at, being able to discriminate that that is made up of two sounds of the a and the t coming together. And it's really important to have that phonemic awareness because the phonemic awareness then leads to being able to put letters onto it to, to lead to being able to actually read and spell the words. So if you don't have the strong phonemic awareness and being able to phonologically process the sounds in, that you're seeing in, in these letters then you don't have a foundation. And without a foundation, you're not going to be able to get anywhere. When you were at the Landmark School and, and you had experiences before that in other schools, what were some of the early signs that a student might have dyslexia? What are some of the typical things you might see? Well, you definitely might see a child who is um, having difficulty discriminating between sounds that are similar. Um, they might be saying one sound when they really meant another sound. Um, a lot of times they'll have difficulty even just, it, it's not that they're not hearing the letters, but like processing the difference between sounds that are similar. Uh, students with dyslexia when they're young typically have difficulty with rhyming. So as we play a bunch of little rhyming games, um, sometimes students who have a particularly difficult time with that, that might be an early indicator. Um, they, they can sometimes be reversing letters when they're writing them, but it's not that they are thinking that they're writing a reversed letter. They've just not mapped the letters correctly to the correct sound. 
Thank you. That's helpful. Um, so again, we're having this breakdown with the phonemic awareness and understanding that it's mapping to a letter, that it's mapping a letter's mapping to a sound, and even understanding that words, letters within a word are corresponding with sounds. Correct. And sometimes it's not always one sound, one letter per one sound. Right, right. That makes sense. Um, our, we can we could talk about this for for days and hours, but also English is very difficult sometimes for dyslexic students because it's it's irregular in the way that sounds. A sound can sound differently within a di- in a different word. But um, I, I did want to mention that dyslexic dyslexia is a pretty common neurological disorder um, or neurodevelopmental disorder. It does occur in about fifteen to twenty percent of our population, um, and so it. You know, it's not a high, it's a it's a high incidence um, condition, uh, and it's something that you know we as a society we really need to treat and remediate. Um, so if you know if if your child has it or if you're a teacher in a general education classroom, um, it's something actually that um, we'd see pretty commonly. Um, and I need to kind of be aware of. Uh, going back to sort of um, the skills that that we see that are affected, one of the things I think um, we need to think about is, so that phonemic awareness, sometimes if we think about reading, there are multiple, multiple skills. Reading is a very complicated process and there are multiple, multiple skills involved. So that phonemic awareness, you were kind of seeing it as the base skill. Um, so then what grows from the phonemic awareness? What else do students need to read and what else is affected when you don't have that foundational skill? Sure. Um, so when you have that phonemic awareness, you start there and you're understanding these sound, the words are made up of sounds, the sounds are represented by letters. You then start learning about like f- um, linguistic patterns and knowing that, you know, every time I see a word that has AP, it's going to say app at the end. You know, they can all rhyme app, clap, flap. But what else comes into play that's really key is the decoding and the ability to to actually decode a word. So when we're starting with real um, elementary basic words, a lot of times people just look at the word and like, oh, well, they can just read that by sight. But that only gets us so far because decoding is your ability to actually break down the parts of an unfamiliar word. And you're able to do that because of your phonemic awareness that you know that these letters are representing sounds that are coming together. So it Sometimes people think, oh, well, it's fine. They just read the word multiple times and they'll remember it and it's great and we can move forward from there. But again, the higher, the older the student gets, the higher the grade, the more complex the language becomes, the more complex the vocabulary and the sentence structure. And if they can't decode, they can't break down those unfamiliar pieces of language and not being able to break that down is going to affect their comprehension. So what, um, give me a little bit of an example of how somebody actually decodes, like what would, what does decoding look like if you were going to teach decoding or give me an example of, of what decoding is? So decoding would be, again, would be to look at a word and instead of reading the whole word, you would be looking, well, you would be looking at the sounds within the word. So let's take the word catnip. If I haven't seen that word before and I don't know what to do, I'm going to have to come up with some strategies for how to attack that word. Some people call it word attack. Um, and what I have to do is I have to think about what do I know about this word? Well, I know that there's two vowels. I know that the vowels um, represent a syllable because every syllable needs to have a vowel. And I then would have to figure out how to break down that word into the two separate syllables of cat and nip. At the basic level of cat, I need to be able to say that the C, I know it says k, the A, the T, put that together, there's my cat, nip, catnip. Um, and so decoding is really breaking down the word into its smaller parts. And the way that you do that is by understanding what those parts are and knowing where you need to break them down. And so this is a skill we, this is kind of, if we're thinking about this as a pyramid um, or building a house, this would be that next skill is having these foundational decoding skills so that you can attack any word, whether it's sort of a simple word that you end up at some point knowing automatically and you don't need those decoding skills to sound out to getting more complex uh, words that multi-syllable words that you need to, to break down. Correct. Um, and then, then where do we go from there? So fluency comes next. 
Fluency is our ability to naturally read the text. We're reading it as if we're telling a story or as if we're talking. If somebody is disfluent, they might be very choppy in their reading. They might read part of the sentence, back up, read part of it again, change a word. And so they're not getting a nice flow with what they're reading. And so if we're not fluent, again, we're affecting our ability to understand what we're reading. So fluency can happen at the word level, being able to be automatic when we see familiar words at the phrase level, at the sentence level, and ultimately then at the paragraph and multi-paragraph level. But that fluency is also very important because when you're fluent, you're not spending the time decoding everything or thinking about how the phrasing comes together and you're actually able to spend your cognitive energy on what you're reading instead of how you're reading it. Mm -hmm. So now we're getting to the higher level processes involved in reading, which is, um, I, I think of it may more like when you're in the lower levels, if we're at the lower levels of a pyramid with the phonemic awareness and the decoding, that's sort of the mechanical parts of reading, right? The nuts and bolts. And then when we get to the higher piece, it's what are we actually reading? What are we're actually devoting to the the, the content of reading? Um, so if we can be fluent readers, then what are we doing? What's our, what's our cherry on the top? What's our next step? And the cherry on the top is the comprehension. It's understanding what we're reading. Because if you can read... There are people who can read anything, but they have no idea what they've read. So we have to be able to understand and to take meaning from what we're reading. So understanding the vocabulary, understanding the sentence structure, understanding how if we have information, you know, offset by commas, what does that mean? How does that affect our understanding of what we're reading? And so really we're taking all of our skills, our phonemic awareness, our understanding of linguistic patterns, our, de our decoding strategies, our fluency, and we're putting it all together to have it have meaning so that we know what we've read and we can learn from that. So it sounds like there are several major threads that run through this. We need those basic decoding skills. We, we need those basic phonemic awareness skills and those decoding skills, those mechanical skills, before we can focus on these higher level skills of understanding of linguistic structures and comprehension to access language at a higher level to understand text. I'm going to bring this back for a minute to um, diagnosis for dyslexia just before we kind of move on. Um, from, you know, as a neuropsychologist from this perspective, um, just, just thinking about diagnosis, a lot of times uh, just to meet the diagnostic criteria, uh, one, one of the diagnostic criteria is to have um, a difference in your, your level of achievement in specific areas of reading, such as decoding, phonemic awareness, um, word reading, uh, compre uh, comprehension is a little bit different. But for uh, for 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 a reading disorder, um, I'm going to go back to decoding, word reading, fluency, um, and that be discrepant from your level of IQ or cognitive potential. Um, so that is the threshold for um, a diagnosis of dyslexia. Um, I also wanted to mention something that can also be confusing for people. I think this is a good juncture to talk about. Um, so in schools and also in something called the diagnostic manual, which is the, the manual that psychologists use to diagnose, diagnose, they do not use the term dyslexia, which can be highly, also highly confusing. So the diagnostic manual decided not to use that term. Instead, they chose to use the term specific learning disability with impairment in reading. Um, so that I'm not going to get into the, the whys and the wherefores. Um, a lot of that has to do with um, political decisions and decisions that have that don't really have aren't really rooted in science. Sometimes um, sometimes they're in, in also indicating that they're broadening broadening the the criteria so that it can include other things like a, a disability in comprehension that um, so that it helps students get access to services uh, other than just a straight dyslexia diagnosis. Um, but um, in some ways they can be used interchangeably. It, they do, it does mean the same thing. If it, if it says a specific learning disability with impairment in reading, um, it is essentially dyslexia. Uh, they just are using different terms. They've chosen the diagnostic manual um, to, to use a different term. Um, which unfortunately kind of muddies the waters and it confuses people as to what that term means. Um, but essentially they can be, 
they can be used inter interchangeably. Once in a while, you will see um, that somebody will give a reading disorder with impairment in comprehension. Um, that can one once in a while you can you can see that without the the weakness and the phonemic awareness. Um, that's kind of an unusual situation. I'm not going to deal with that in this podcast because um, it's a it's a different animal. But I would say you know in 95, 96% of cases, um, when you see that that diagnosis, they're, they're basically the same, but the confusion with the categorization um, does not help to clarify what the diagnosis means, if that makes sense. Um, so, um, but we're still looking at the same basic deficits. The other thing that's worth mentioning is sometimes we're going to get into intervention, but sometimes what happens is if students get intervention, they can, they can remediate partially and have weaknesses in phonemic aware, remediate those weaknesses in phonemic awareness, um, but still have weaknesses in fluency. So it doesn't mean they don't have dyslexia. It just means that some of the areas have been remediated, but we still see some of the effects of the dyslexia. And I think that, you know, I think that that also raises a big level of confusion with both families and educators sometimes is that sometimes people think, oh, well, you know, but they can read, so they're not dyslexic. And that's not true either. Um, and they're, you know, in, in my experience working with many, many students over the years, I do find it fascinating at times when you have a child and you look at their ability to read words in isolation and you look at their ability to decode and their phonemic awareness and it's so incredibly low. And then you look at their ability to read a leveled text fluently and sometimes they can actually access that text. They're not fluent. They're you know very choppy and lots of errors, but they can read far better than they can decode. And that's very confusing for some educators and families because they think, well, how can they be dyslexic? They just read that, like, but they weren't accurate. And if you take those exact same words and you put them on a piece of paper in isolation, they don't know how to get them. Right. And so we're going to talk about that right now. We're going to talk about how sometimes that happens um, and inconsistencies in how uh, students perform. Uh, and also the fact that um, Dyslexia isn't something you grow out of. <laughs> so it's not that you um, had dyslexia and then you no longer have it. Um, it's, um, it is a, it's a lifelong, um, it's a, what we call a developmental condition. Um, it, you can treat it, um, but it, it has a, it is a lifelong condition and we'll talk about what it can look like when it's treated. And there's lots of good news there, but that can also be con confusing for families because if students hit a certain level of achievement and their, their, their skills remediate, they'll say, well, you no longer qualify for that diagnosis. Um, and that can be very, very confusing as well. Uh, so I think this is a good time to talk about intervention. Uh, it's a good segue for that conversation. So Sharon, you are the one on the, have been the one on the front lines who's been doing intervention for a very long time. So I'm going to turn to you and ask, what are the components of good evidence-based intervention? How do we help with this weakness and phonemic awareness that cascades into challenges in all these other areas? How do we address this? Great question. Um, it needs to be multisensory. We need to be understanding that we have to look at this from an auditory, like a listening perspective, visual, what we can see, kinesthetic, being able to touch. It needs to be systematic and not just haphazard and, oh, we'll do this sound today and maybe we'll work on that skill tomorrow. Um, it needs to be sequential so that you know where you're starting and where you're moving to. And there needs to be a real um, component of spiraling and reviewing and working to the point that the student will master it, um, the big buzzword that everybody hears is automaticity. And that's really just making it so that it's, it becomes natural. They're able to do it automatically. And I think the other thing is to notice that, you know, it really needs to address language. Having dyslexia is a language disability. And there are four, you know, key areas of language that it's important to think about. It's the listening, the speaking, the reading, the writing. If you're dyslexic, you have difficulty perceiving those sounds correctly. You can have difficulty processing and creating those sounds as well. It doesn't mean you have a speech impediment. It means that you, dis, you have some difficulties with 
formulating the correct sounds that you're looking for to match what you're hearing or what you want to say. They have difficulty with the reading and the writing. So that those good programs have to be really multisensory, systematic, sequential, provide that review so that we can address these skills and allow the students to succeed. So one thing I'm hearing you say is that uh, this isn't necessarily something that somebody would think about automatically, but reading isn't just, reading seems almost, I wouldn't say a passive process, but you think that you're just looking at a piece of paper and you need to learn how to break down those sounds. But it's a language-based process so that you have to engage lots of different pathways around language. So there's listening that has to do with auditory language. We're going to talk a little bit more about spelling because it's a really important process that involves, that is intimately tied to reading. And then there's reading and then there's writing. So writing is the other, right, the other, um, the other process that's intimately tied with language and with reading. So can you tell me, um, I'm going to ask you to tell me a little bit about spelling um, before we go on with the rest of sure. the um, the interventions, because I think this is key and it's a big part of also how you fashion the intervention. Why is spelling so important to reading? Why are most dyslexic students very poor spellers? Those are great questions. And it's, they're very, you know, they're complementary skills. You need the decoding skills to be able to have the encoding or the spelling skills and vice versa. And so your knowledge of each is going to complement the other. So when we talked back about that phonemic awareness, we were talking about that being our ability to understand that words are created, they're made up of sounds. And once we start mapping letters onto those sounds, that's where we're bringing the spelling into play. And so our understanding of the phonemic awareness that the word cat is made up of three sounds, k, a, and t, and that those sounds are represented with the letters C, A, T. That's both a reading skill and a spelling skill because you have to be able to use your ability to break down a word into sounds to spell. And you have to understand what those linguistic patterns are that you're used to seeing when you spell it. So, um, for example, like the I-G-H-T says it. So you would know that if you have, you know, fight, might, light. So that's also something that you need to know that pattern to read it, but you also need to know that pattern to spell it. And then you need to have that visual recognition when you have spelled to say, oh, yes, I've seen this before. So you're t really tying the two of those together. Um, also, when we get to like more complicated spelling expectancies or spelling rules or spelling principles. They're all called different things. But your knowledge of the spelling expectancy can help you read the word because you understand what was done to create that word. So it helps you know how you need to read that. So they're really very closely intertwined. So basically, those phonemic patterns, you're those phonemic patterns are mapped on to visual representations. And so if you don't know those phonemic patterns, it's very hard to learn the spelling patterns because essentially they're phonemic patterns. Correct. And you're getting, if you don't have the ability to break apart a word into its individual sounds and put it back together, then you, you're just putting down some of the sounds or in the wrong order as you're trying to spell them. But your ability to know that that word is a certain number of sounds and what the order of those sounds is, and then what graphemes or letters I'm going to use to represent those sounds, that all comes together in the spelling. Gotcha. So they, the, it sounds like the, the, the that process, process, correct me if I'm wrong, is called orthographic mapping. Correct. So you're mapping just the visual, visually mapping the sound to the, to the visual letter, the visual representation of the letter. And doing that is very hard for dyslexic students. And that's why you need the explicit encoding instruction. And it goes hand in hand with the decoding. So it, they reinforce each other and you, you need both. Um, 
can you tell, I feel like this is something that I see a lot clinically and is very frustrating and is underestimated. Um, when kids are learning to write, often people say, well, they can just use spell check. They can, you know, it's not a big deal. Somebody can tell them how to write, how to spell that word. Um, can you tell me, this is a little bit more of an emotional question. What's the impact when students go to write and they don't know how to spell words from just a frustration level, from a production level, um, because you're you're thinking about how to write something. And then if your spelling is is significantly delayed, what's the impact on on trying to construct your own thoughts? There's a huge impact. Um, there's a couple things there that will happen. One is that if you don't know how to spell it, some kids will just shut down and won't write. Um, and because it's just too hard, they have to spend so much energy trying to figure out what letters they're supposed to put on the page that they just get so frustrated that they give up or they work so hard to put down their letters on the page and then they try to read back what they wrote and they have no idea what they wrote because it doesn't make any sense because the graphemes don't map correctly. And one of the biggest things that we see a lot is that a student who has these amazing ideas, they're a very intelligent child, they have great vocabulary, but they don't know how to spell any of those words. So instead of using a word such as gigantic or enormous, they're going to just say, forget it, I can't do that. And they call it big. And then you have a child who you know has a greater vocabulary and a greater ability to demonstrate complex, sophisticated language, but really, um, simplifies what they're writing because it's just too difficult to try to figure out how to spell what they want it to say. Mm. So it limits writing in many ways and many creates ways. a lot of frustration for kids. Yes, it does. Great question. So where we were before was talking about the need for it to be multisensory. And again, when we go back to that phonological or the phoneme aware, phonemic awareness with the phonological processing. And then that leads us to the phonics of really understanding those, the way that those sounds are represented by the letters. And if we don't have that, you know, it's like having, it's like missing the cornerstones. You know, you've got some of the foundation, but you didn't put that corner post in. And we really need to have that there because kids need to be able to recognize those phonemic patterns or the phonics patterns within those words. They need to say, oh, I recognize that part. Oh, I'm going to build onto that. And then if they don't, then again, it's, it's hindering their ability to decode, which is hindering their ability to read fluently, which is hindering their ability to comprehend. You have trained teachers in these programs and how to use these programs. You've done them yourself. Does every intervention look the same? So do you kind of say, all right, here is how I structure my reading program. This is what works for kids. This is how you're going to do it. Absolutely not. I think there are philosophies that involve, here's a great program. Every child fits into the box of this program, and we're going to use it from point A to point Z, and that's what it needs to be. In my experience, every child is different, and every child needs something slightly different. It is really important that it is multisensory. We have to come at these things from different modalities, auditory, visual, kinesthetic. It has to be systematic, not just flying all over the place, but also knowing that we need to pull the appropriate approach that's going to work best for that child. And that might look a little bit different. It should look different than another child in another room next door because they might have similar needs, but not identical needs. And it's really important to make the programming for a child to be specific for what they need. And if there's something that needs to be done a little differently for them, or maybe pull something from a different program, a piece of a program and pull them together, not just haphazard, like, hey, I'm going to grab a little of this and a little of that, but really looking at what the needs are of the student and making sure that you're developing the best program for that child, not just the program that everybody in the class is going to get. So it sounds like you pull from different empirically based val and validated programs to see what would be the most appropriate for this student. Correct. Um, I think one thing we haven't talked about yet is just as I just <laughs> said, do you use the same program for every student? Every dyslexic student is not the same. Um, and there's a huge variation in what dyslexic students look like in their profiles. You can have a student that's 
has a mild profile and only needs a little bit of help. Um, I have seen students that are functionally illiterate at 11 years of age. So I would imagine that that looks extremely different and you would put together a very different intervention for those kinds of students. Correct. There's an art, right, to, to, to what you're doing and it requires a flexibility. But it sounds like you know you're using the programs that have the research backing. Yes. And I think what's, you know, sometimes I'll jokingly refer to a student as like, a Swiss cheese child, where they clearly received some portions of interventions at different levels. And so they have a pretty good foundation. There's just some holes in there. And so I kind of view them as a student that you have to fill in the the missing pieces. And then there's other students that we're starting from ground zero because they don't have anything. And so we are going to really start at the foundation and build. And, you know, just to clarify what I'm saying for like a Swiss cheese child, I'm not talking let's let's play whack-a-mole and let's just kind of like hit whatever hole we want along the way. But we're going to systematically look at that and see like starting at the foundation, what do they have? What are they missing? Let's fill that in. Now let's move up to the next level. Let's, what are they missing? What do they have? Fill in what's missing. Um, I, I do think that it's it's really important to look at the individuality of each child and what their their specific needs are. And I think that that's why, you know, sometimes when students are grouped in groups of like five and six students to work on their reading, they might be similar, but they're not going to be the same. They're not going to be having the same exact areas of weakness and the same exact style of learning the well, learning style in general, but not the same. They aren't going to have the exact same benefit of an identical approach. And would you say that also they're not going to have the same specific needs? So even if they're at a general level, they may be missing different phonemic areas and the teacher might not be able to address all this, the different areas of weakness because the profile is uneven for the students. Exactly. Like even within that phonemic awareness, you know, some students might be able to break apart the word and not put it back together. And others might be able to put words together if you give them individual sounds, but they can't break a word into the sounds. And so they both have phonemic awareness issues, but they're very different. And I I think there are some just core foundational strategies that are absolutely excellent for every child. But I also think it's important to look at the specific nuances of each child about what their specific needs are. Obviously, in an ideal world, everybody would have like, you know, some well, actually, I'm going to change that. I was about to say that everybody in the ideal world, everybody would have that one-on-one ability, you know, have the ability to have a one-on-one instruction for reading. But I, I think that that's not true. I think in the ideal world, all children will be given reading instruction from the get-go that is multisensory, systematic, and sequential, and will allow all students, even those with dyslexia, to be successful. They might need a little additional Uh, remediation, but putting those foundational skills in place for everybody, whether you have dyslexia or you don't, isn't going to hurt those that don't, and it's only going to help those that do. I think that's a great point. And I think that's a great segue to talk about some of the broader issues about literacy instruction that are happening in the country and in the area. And I'm sure you're aware of this. Let's talk a little bit about the different educational models, such as uh, level literacy, LLI, and Lucy Calkins, which have gotten a lot of negative press in the, I guess, the last year or last two years. They have been wildly popular for a long time, but have come into heavy fire because data has shown that they have not been effective in educating children. And in fact, data has shown that we're kind of really behind the eight ball in reading skills because of them. I'll let you speak to sort of the educational strategies and the methodology behind them and then maybe we can have a little bit of a discussion. What is the Lucy Calkins model? I think a lot of parents have heard about Lucy Calkins and Fontes and Pinnell. What are these models? What do they entail? So they're really focused on what they're referring to as balanced literacy. And really what they're doing there is um, the focus is on meaning um, rather than like accuracy of what's being read. Their whole kind of premise is, you know, there is some haphazard kind of phonemic awareness instruction put in there, like a little bit of this and that. They have, you know, a little bit of the phonics that might be really short and quick, but that's not taught to the point of 
being automatic and it's not considered a foundational, like absolutely positively must have this in order to succeed. They're really, their sort of goal is like, well, if the more that students read, the better they're going to get at reading. <laughs> that they sort of want them to be able to be reading so that they will have a love of reading, but not necessarily for the point of being able to read. What you're saying is basically these were not, were pretty unstructured curricula, which put a premium on self-directed exploration with literacy materials that were considered to be highly engaging, colorful, what they thought would be interesting for children, but um, not structured, explicit literacy instruction. Yes. As a parent, what I have had a very difficult time with is when they send home, you know, here's the, don't forget to use your decoding strategies when you're reading tonight. And you look at the decoding strategies and they're not decoding strategies. They're not teaching the children how to decode. It's things like, hey, check the context. What word would make sense here? Well, that's not decoding. Look back at the picture. Does that help you figure out what might go in there? That's not decoding. Read the sentence again and see if what would make sense. That's not decoding. And so I appreciate 100% the desire to have children love to read and to have them read more and more. But if they don't have the skills to decode when they get to unfamiliar text, which they will get to, whether it be in upper elementary school, middle school, high school, or beyond, then that love of reading that they may or may not be fostering from just reading a bunch of material is going to go away because reading is going to get very difficult. I think it's wrong to not provide children with the tools that they need to be able to access the text. Although I do, like I said, I agree that we want children to love reading and we want them to read more. And the more that they read, the more vocabulary they'll learn and they'll be able to see different types of sentence structure, but they need to have the tools to be able to do so. So where balanced literacy, I feel, goes wrong is that it takes away too much of the structure and the intentional instruction in phonics and sort of assumes that it will, it will come by the more that they see the words. And it's not that that's where I feel like we've I've personally seen a lot of students who have come to me over the years who can read, but they can't decode. And their reading is not fluent. And there's lots of stops and starts and lots of self-corrections because they went a little further in the text and realized that that word that they guessed on two sentences ago doesn't make sense with the rest of what they're reading. And it's, it's not making them efficient, accurate readers who can then comprehend. I think I'm having two thoughts about this. Is first, it sounds like you are talking about the triple queuing system, which was, it is look at the picture. Uh, tell me, tell me, I forget what it is. It's use context to figure it out. You know, what word or look at, do you see a pattern that that might, you know, it's a little bit of, do you recognize a pattern, but there's lots of ways. Right. It's sort of like, look at the, look at the word, see if you see a, like a pattern or, um, or like look at the first letter, which is all guessing. It's not actually decoding. Uh, which leads to inexpert readers. Basically, you're trying to guess from context cues. So I think, interestingly, you, you had said they can read, but I guess when I, when I hear you say that, they're not actually reading. <laughs> so there's, there's a debate as to whether that means they're reading. I guess they have, they have sort of somewhat of a sight word vocabulary that they, they're words that they know automatically that are probably short words like the and into or, or words like that. Is that, would that be right? True. But I think also some of our children who, as you were talking about earlier, about a lot of dyslexic children have a real, like, there's a, the discrepancy between their cognitive potential and their ability to, to actually access text. And I think sometimes they can use those skills that they have to guess pretty close words. And so if you listen to them read sometimes or what we would consider reading, they sound pretty good. They're a little choppy. They might, might be missing, you know, making some mistakes and going back. But ultimately, 
how much are they actually comprehending of what they're reading because they've kind of guessed at this word and guessed at that word and they were close, but not quite, or they made a lot of mistakes or they changed the whole phrasing of what they were reading because they stopped and started so many times that they took the end of the previous sentence and put it in to the beginning of the next sentence so that it sounds like they're reading and you sit there and go, oh, they're, you know, wow, they're reading away. But if you listen more closely and take a closer look at it, they're not accurate. They're not fluent. They're not phrasing properly. And a lot of, many of their guesses are close, but not quite. And so it's ultimately affecting the overall. And if, if you gave them those some of the exact same words in a list, they would have no idea how to get to them. So what they really are are really good context cue guessers. Yes. And they can look at the shape of a word and they may have a little bit of phonemic awareness that they're skating by. And they might have some background knowledge on the topic. And that's where you get into big trouble when you get into the higher grades where they might not have a lot of background knowledge on, you know, some medieval event or something. So they, mm-hmm. or, you know, you're looking at mathematical terms or biology terms. And so now using their intelligence to guess at an appropriate word in context is going to be significantly harder. And they're going to start being like, wait a minute, what am I reading? Um, so I think it's really key, as I said earlier, like if every child was given the skills to be able to determine the number of sounds and words, the order of those sounds, the letters that go with those sounds, how to put them together, how to break apart unfamiliar words. If they all had that key foundation, they'd be building some beautiful houses of reading, putting lots of books in there. Right. And when you get to words, if you're in biology and you get words like meiosis and meiosis and mitosis and things like that, now you're kind of past, you're past the faking it phase and you're going to lose people. There, the other thought I have is how do you learn to love reading when you can't actually read? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when you're not a good decoder, how, and you're guessing, how do you, how do you become um, an engaged, passionate reader? Well, and I think what you have there sometimes, you know, I've, I've, again, I've worked with a number of students who they've quote unquote read the book, but then you start asking them questions about it and you realize that they missed they might have gotten the big picture of what they read, but they missed a ton of details and a lot of the inferential skills that are in there because of the inferential information, because they were just sort of doing a great job of guessing at what came next and not really taking the time, not really having the energy to take the time to think about everything that they read and to make sense of it and to to interact with it while they're reading, to be thinking, you know, like actively reading and thinking, geez, what do they mean by that? Oh yeah. Okay. Um, or making the connections because they're just kind of using their energy to get through the text. So like I read the book, but they can't tell you most information about the book or they can tell you it was about this boy and his dog, but they can't tell you what happened. Or if you ask specific questions, they will have a very difficult time coming up with the information. Right. So they can't, they can't read at a deeper, for deeper meaning at a deeper level and they're having trouble synthesizing the information. Um, and then this also really makes me think about, um, what the, the other criticism of Fontes and Pinnell is how this affects, um, children of color and children from low income neighborhoods um, and areas where they don't have the same background experience um, that other children. I, you know, we both kind of work with upper to uh, middle to upper income families that they they do have experience, upper, uh, early literacy experiences. They do have um, much more background knowledge, stronger vocabularies that are sort of buoying them through this to some extent. So they, so they, when they're reading, they have all this background knowledge. They have all these uh, sources to inference from, um, and their their parents are exposing them to books much earlier. Um, they're orient- orienting them to literacy and and encouraging them to be interested about it and be curious about it. Where um, other other children don't have that opportunity, their families don't have the opportunity to give them these experiences. Um, so, if you think about that, that's really upsetting. Absolutely, because again, if they're being asked to what's the picture showing you or what, you know, use the context to help you. But if they don't have that background knowledge, 
how are they using the context to help them? Right, right, right. Can you talk a little bit, um, we're going to wrap up soon, but I've, can you talk a little bit about the importance of vocabulary building too? Just uh, phonics is obviously really important, but just f- teaching vocabulary, um, reading vocabulary. Absolutely. And that, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about, about the importance of needing the decoding, because you have to be able to decode the word to make sure that you're getting the accurate word, because especially as we get to these big multi-syllable words, it's really easy to miss a syllable. Um, And the vocabulary is key to our understanding of what we're reading. And if we don't understand the vocabulary, then we might, you know, it's complicated because you have some kids who can actually decode those words and they're doing a good job with it. But then they have no idea what they read. So you ask them the question and say, well, what did that mean? And they said, I don't know. Um, And that wasn't because they weren't decoding because sometimes they have decoded, but if they don't understand that vocabulary, that is again going to impact their ability to comprehend. And the vocabulary is really key because we can't just be always using, you know, big, small, happy, sad. It has to be the sophisticated vocabulary that they're going to be experiencing in their school books that they read and the textbooks that they have and that they want to be using in life. So vocabulary is also, it's really key to the comprehension of understanding the the subtle nuances of language when you use one word versus another, Um, but vocabulary and and really understanding the meaningful parts of words is going to help you understand the vocabulary. So knowing about those common prefixes and suffixes and word roots and what they mean and how we're building words from there. It's all very important to be able to help them understand what they're reading. And, you know, the more you understand what you're reading, the more you enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would make sense. That would make a lot of sense. Um, I, the other thing I'm curious and I wanted to ask you is what is your take on an older students? Um, I would say, say students that are 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, even, you know, even students in their 20s or, or adults that never learn to read. So these are students who, or they, they can fake it. They can fake it to some extent, but they actually don't have foundational reading skills. So they're sort of at this extreme frustration level uh, where they can sort, they, they might've even gotten all the way through high school and gotten out of there, but they really, if you test them, they really can't read. Their reading skills are quite low. Um, they might've figured out a little bit and they can compensate enough to get through, but they really can't read in a way that's really going to limit the rest of their lives. And um, I would say from the assessment side, the way I was trained was to say they're too old really to go through a phonics-based program. They need compensatory strategies like using books on tape, you know, do a little bit of this, but don't really try to fully remediate a dyslexia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I think that the wisdom around that is shifting and is wondering about your opinion about that. Absolutely. I think um, we can always learn. We can learn until we go to the grave. You know, like I think our brain has the ability. I mean, you know more about the brain scientifically than I do, but our brain has the ability to learn new pathways. And I don't think that we should ever give up on somebody's ability to become a reader because, you know, might it take a little more time if they're an older student? Absolutely. But they, they definitely can learn how to decode, how to understand the phonemic, you know, to get, they can get that phonemic awareness. They can understand the phonics patterns. They can definitely learn the decoding strategies. They can become more fluent and they can actually understand what they're reading. And I think, I think it's great to have books on tape. They can definitely help to keep them accessing literature, but I don't think we should ever give up on anybody because there is no window that shuts permanently and they can never learn. They absolutely can learn. Yeah. And there's data that your brain is plastic and you can learn those phonemic patterns. There, There can be a difference in how receptive or how quickly, you know, or how effectively. Um, but there's no, there's no indication that this is, this process will not work when you're older. I, there's no reason to stop doing that. There's no reason to, to give up on that process. Right. And, you know, that reminds me too, like we were also talking at some point about how, I think you would just reference there a minute ago, like the whole, like remediating the dyslexia. And I think that's also another one of those myths that's out there is that like, you're, if you're dyslexic, you're always dyslexic. And it's not that you are never going to be like, 
having dyslexia does not equate to not being able to read. Having dyslexia equates to how your brain processes that language. So I think it's really important for people to know, just like if this is an adult, that you're, you know, if it's an adult student, like you were just mentioning, they can learn to read and they can't, it's really about learning the skills and the strategies that they need to be able to access the text. And I think sometimes people think, oh, well, they can, they can read more closely to grade level, so they're cured. And I just think I want to caution families to, to recognize that if, you, if your child has dyslexia or if you have dyslexia, that doesn't go away. It's just something that you have the ability to work with. And so you can remediate a lot of the missing skills. But, you know, there's some kids that will always be a slow reader, but that doesn't mean that they're not a reader. There are some students that, you know, might continually have difficulty with spelling because that's just an extreme weakness for them. But that doesn't mean that they have not closed the gap of where they're at. And then we can definitely close the gap for anybody, I believe. Right. I think that's a great point. Um, I think, you know, when we talk about dyslexia, um, it is a, uh, it's a remediable condition. And, um, and so that's the great news about it. One of the things that gets a little confusing for parents sometimes in schools, and this is what I was referring to that we were going to circle back to, is that when they say, oh, you, your, your skills are up to grade level, you know, you no longer qualify for an IEP, you no longer have a reading disability, that's not true. That means that you're no longer meeting the criteria for a reading disability categorization in an IEP. That doesn't mean that your your brain reorganized itself and it is processing language in a different manner. It means that we, we, um, that means that you got enough remediation that your brain can now process those phonics in a different way that it is accessing that you, that you've developed enough phonics skills, enough fluency skills to access text on grade level. Um, but it's sort of, if we think about um, a metaphor, um, if you had another type of condition, if you had diabetes and the diabetes was treatable um, and it was well, well treated, or if you, um, or you had epilepsy and it was very well treated, um, it doesn't mean you didn't have it. It just meant that, you know, it was, it was successfully treated. Um, and um, so I, so that's sort of the way that I think about um, the the dis, that dyslexia piece is you um, your brain is always going to function differently a little bit. It's always going to process language information a little differently. Um, but the great news is is you can read. Um, you you and you also you gain different skills, and I think you gain a different perspective. And um, it teaches you a lot to be to have to kind of work around um, having uh, learning differently. And I don't say that lightly because I know it's very, it's a very, it's a struggle. There's a lot that, that happens to families and to children when they have dyslexia. Um, but there are some, um, there are some, there are some, I wouldn't say gifts and gifts might not be the right word, but there are some, you would, okay. <laughs> um, that, you know, that, that come from it. And I think that you, um, students do learn resiliency over time. No, I would, I would use gifts. Yeah, I would. Um, um, they learn different problem-solving skills, um, and maybe should I, well, I just think say your impressions because you've worked with so many students. I think it's, I think that that the dyslexic brain, although it processes language differently and it can make the task of reading more difficult, I think there are also many gifts that come with a dyslexic brain, and maybe not so much the gift of oh, you had to go through all of this, but the gifts in in thinking differently and kind of thinking outside the box sometimes is that can be really, um, I mean, there's some, I think, I think dyslexic thinking is actually a qualification or a, a category on like LinkedIn now, <laughs> you know, like it's actually a skill that people could look for. Um, but one thing I have had a number of students come back to me to say is that the skills that they learned in elementary or middle school when they were at the school where I was, they had those skills and were teaching them to their college peers who didn't have certain skills because they had gotten to the point where those peers had gotten to the point where, oh my gosh, I didn't have these skills. I don't know what to do with this. And they were able to share the strategies that they had learned. Um, and so I think in some ways 
that's a very empowering feeling for them to say, look, I, I went through all this. I had to work extra hard, but now I've got these strategies and skills and I'm, I can be very efficient about dealing with some of my work because of the strategies and skills that I developed while struggling to remediate my dyslexia. That's that's really interesting. One thing I would say that part of my uh, graduate training, I my mentor did a lot of um, research and resiliency, and part of being resilient is is that the definition is you had to have had something adverse happen to you to overcome. So you you do have to have an obstacle to say this was difficult, and I I figured out how to overcome it, and it gives you a level of confidence. It gives you a level of competency. Um, so so I in that way, it, it is a gift that you do receive, um, from it. And, um, and, and I think it gives you certain ways of thinking about how to solve problems, how, how, you know, if I can't do something exactly how somebody else does it, how might I go about it? How might I, how might I figure this out? Uh, and then on the flip side, um, how do we as educators, as adults give students the tools that they absolutely need to not then for their entire lives be trying to figure out something that they don't know how to do? <laughs> don't know how to do. Right. And that, you know, that brings up the whole idea to, you know, not, not to go down this rabbit hole, but just the whole idea of empowering versus enabling and really, um, yes, dyslexic students have difficulty with reading and decoding and spelling and just all aspects of language, but it is able to be remediated. There are strategies that they can learn. And I think sometimes the nature of a teacher can almost like you want to help the child. And some kids definitely learn that. Like if I stop reading and look at my teacher, she's going to give me the word. But I think the more that we can empower those students that they have these strategies, you know, teach them the strategies, empower them to use them. They then become much more um, aware of who they are as, as learners and who, who they are as like as a coworker and what strengths and weaknesses might they bring to a situation. And I think that is another one of the sort of hidden gifts of having a dyslexia diagnosis is being able to figure out, you know, I think if you were to ask a neurotypical child, like, well, how do you learn best and what are your strengths and what do you bring to the table? They're not going to necessarily be able to answer that. But a student who has dyslexia, who has really worked through, you know, learning how to read and all the different strategies and knowing, you know, it's helpful if I have that, what you're talking about, if I have it in writing as well, or if I have a picture to match with it. And that really makes them know who they are to be able to be superbly successful as far as saying what, what did they bring to the table. Thank you for that perspective. And and thank you for this conversation today. It was really, really fascinating, really great stuff. And um, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be I'm really excited to be part of the Kids Center team. Thank you so much. I am I am delighted that you're here. Take care. <laughs> Have a great afternoon. Please visit our website at kidscenter.net. Look out for our next podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Upcoming podcasts are about IEPs, 504 plans, language-based programs, and more. Have a great afternoon. Hi, everyone. I'm back again with a brief epilogue to the episode. I wanted to mention that a few days after the podcast was made, Columbia's Teachers College announced that it is shuttering the Lucy Calkins Reading and Writing Project. So there are changes afoot in the way that we're teaching reading and writing. Um, there also have been large-scale changes in educational practice in large school districts in the South in states like Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana. They're taking on curricula using the science of reading and phonics, multisensory sequential phonics, and they've shown huge gains in their students' scores. So there's a lot of promising change happening in the way that reading is taught using evidence-based science. And I also just wanted to provide you with a resource about interventions that are effective. We didn't really talk about the interventions that school districts or reading interventionists commonly use. Some of those programs tend are Wilson, Orton-Gillingham, and the Lyndon Bloomdell LIPS program. However, um, as we discussed in the podcast, it really depends on the areas of weakness that the student has, where they're struggling, and how their dyslexia is manifesting. But there is a Clearinghouse called the What Works Clearinghouse. You can actually just enter that into a search bar online. We'll also provide a link in the show notes if you'd like to look at that resource. Thanks very much. Take care.